The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. morning again. Uh, If you have your Bible with you, I'd invite you to open it to the book of Philippians. We're going to be in chapter two this morning. We're in our series, Walking Through This Book. Um, We're in Philippians two. We'll be at the first 11 verses. I believe the text is also in the worship guide that you hopefully received when you came on campus this morning as well. Well, we recently had the largest viewed sporting event in the world. And like many of you, um, I watched some of it as well. And of course, you know, I'm talking about the World Cup final. Not the Super Bowl. The World Cup final actually has 10 times more people watching it than the Super Bowl did. And unfortunately for you, I know none of you got to watch the finish of it as it went to overtime and then a shootout. And I know that because it happened during church and none of you would ever skip church to watch a sporting event. I know this. I know this about all of you, let alone stream it while I'm preaching. No, 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 no. All right. We'll talk afterwards if you need to confess your sins, all right? So I didn't get to watch it. I can multitask, but I cannot watch a shootout while preaching at the same time. But it ended in a shootout, and and that kind of reminded me of a video I saw many years earlier. You know, I haven't played soccer, but I've, I've talked to soccer players before, and they've said often in a shootout, it is just as much a mental game between the goalie and the one person shooting it as it is a physical thing. And the goalie will try and distract them to get into their head to think they're gonna go one way or, the other. And there was a clip from a college, um, a college men's soccer game many years ago that went viral and we saw online. It reminded me of this, that to distract the player, the goalie, while the player was getting ready to shoot it, the goalie was doing cartwheels in the net, trying to get in the guy's head. The guy just like stares straight ahead at him. The ref blows the whistle. He shoots, scores, and then goes to the goalie and does cartwheels around the goalie. <laughs> like, it's so perfect. That is just one example of many of which that I could think of, of what it looks like to make someone have to eat from our expression to eat humble pie, right? You may say, why didn't you use a story like that from your own life? Why? There were too many to choose from. I could not pick just one, as I'm sure you have as well, of times in your life where you did something that caused you to eat humble pie. By the way, did you know that expression actually comes from medieval times when numble or umble was part of a deer that were normally the intestines and bad cuts of meat that they would mix into pie and serve peasants and those who could not afford the good cuts of meat. So at least you didn't have to actually eat the humble pie like other people used to do hundreds of years ago. But the reality is, while none of us wants to be humbled, we don't look for opportunities to be humbled in public for sure. Humility is not just a good thing in our lives. As we look back, for most of us, we can look at times where we were humbled and actually see the blessings that resulted from it. If you are a follower of Jesus, humility should be something regularly evidenced and seen in your life. Humility is not to be an optional thing, but, but a thing that should be there present each and every day for us. And as we continue through this passage this morning in Philippians 2, we're going to get three reasons that every Christian should be humble. Three reasons that not just some of us, but every single one of us who is a follower of Jesus should live in and practice humility regularly in our lives. And let's start in chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. The first reason every Christian should be humble is humility leads to unity. Humility lived out in our lives and lived in the church leads to unity amongst believers and leads to unity within the church. The passage starts in in verse one as he's continuing this idea of unity, pulling from where we ended last week at the end of chapter one. If there is any encouragement, that if is not a question, but kind of rhetorical thing. You could easily translate this since or because, right? Since you have encouragement in Christ because you have comfort from his love, since you've participated in the Holy Spirit because of this, he's saying, complete my joy. He's requesting this this command actually to do this for him. Why? Of being of the same mind. There's this fourfold expression of unity that's seen there. We shouldn't try and delay exactly what he's saying, but it's kind of this all-encompassing phrase that he's using different words to, to express the importance of unity. That you be, he says in verse two, of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, or some would say the same spirit of one spirit and of one mind, one mission, one purpose. He's saying that unity is to be seen. It should be evidence in your church. And how can it be done? In verse three, unity is accomplished through humility as we each practice it. Unity in the church, this kind of oneness that he envisions would characterize the Philippian church and should characterize the church, not just ours, but collectively Christians in our world is only possible as we live in this kind of humility that Paul is encouraging us to do here in verses three and four. He says to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. I remember memorizing this verse as a child in King James version where it says, do nothing from strife or vain glory. Love that phrase, to to look after your own doing. Some some translations translate this, do nothing from rivalry or empty gain. Rivalry or empty gain. See, when it comes to most things in life, we have a few different options, whether these are people or teams or whatever. Number one is is you cheer for it. You cheer for the success. You're you're rooting for them. You're you're in favor of it. The second thing is we're kind of neutral. There's a few things in life you can be neutral about. But then the third thing is you're not cheering for them. You're actually cheering against them. It's not just that you're neutral, but you actually want them to do poorly. You're actively cheering against them. And we get this idea of rivalry most clearly seen in our context and in our world with how people talk and view sports teams. Now, I I remember a couple years ago, when I was interviewing for this job as lead pastor with the elders. And since most of you haven't interviewed as a lead pastor or been an elder doing that, I'll give you an insight. It gets very intense, very quick. I think the second question they asked me was like, all right, Michael, who are your favorite sports teams? It's a very important question to which I gladly confessed that my favorite team is the Los Angeles Lakers. Now, I don't know if it's because I'm a Southern California native or just the 17 NBA championships and the fact that they're clearly better than everyone else, but that was my answer. I noticed a look of concern on several of the elders' faces, as I mentioned, a Southern California team. And one of them said, please, please don't tell me you're a Dodger fan too. I said, don't worry, I'm not a Dodger fan. They said, okay, we can continue talking with them. The interview's not over yet. You know, because if you are a San Francisco Giants fan, which I know and I'm looking at many of you here this morning are very big San Francisco Giants fans, your favorite team that you cheer for is the San Francisco Giants. Your second favorite team is whoever's playing the Dodgers because you want them to lose. You don't just want the Giants to do well. You are actively cheering against someone else. 
Now, we don't come out and publicly say this and admit this to others, but that is the attitude of too many Christians towards other people. Not only are we not their biggest fan, that we're not cheering for them, but selfishly in our hearts, we're kind of like, I, I hope that goes bad. I hope that get, that's a train wreck. I hope they fail in that. that. That we treat other Christians sometimes out of rivalry when we should be cheering for them, that we are on the same team, but instead we are looking to push them down. See, this kind of attitude of selfish ambition, of conceit inside the church, it makes unity not just difficult, but impossible. A church cannot be united unless it is humble as each believer practices humility in their own lives. I love as John Stott, the the English pastor put it, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility is our greatest friends. That humility is necessary for us to practice if we are followers of Jesus. No, I think the reason why humility is lost by so many of us as to its importance to be seen in our lives is we don't value unity in the church like how Jesus does. If we understood why, how Jesus values unity, we would understand why humility practiced by us, which leads to unity, is so important. But unity was something that Jesus wasn't just like, oh, hey, with everything else you got going on, you should try and do this. It was at the top of the list when Jesus thought of his church. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays this. In John 17, starting at verse 20, he says this, I do not ask for these only, that's his disciples who are there with him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me, if you're a Christian. That's all of us who've been saved because of the testimony of the apostles that has been handed down. So he's praying for us. What is his prayer request? That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. See, for Jesus, unity wasn't just, oh, by the way, if you guys could get along and be united, that would be a cool thing. What he says, when the church is united, when believers stand in humility and unity together, notice what happens. Suddenly the gospel goes forth and people believe. The gospel goes forth and people know that they are loved because they see humility lived out in the lives of the believers. Meaning this, that when the church is not humble, when Christians are living in pride rather than humility, and so we are not united, what happens is we're actually hindering the belief of the gospel going forward and we're hindering people from seeing the fact that Jesus loves them because we refuse to to practice and live into humility in our own lives. See, our world is as polarized and divided as it ever has been that I can certainly ever know of in my lifetime. And what does our world need more than ever right now? It needs Christians who are humble and united together. We have an opportunity in our polarized world to have a powerful witness for the gospel. We need Christians to live humbly, realizing that, you know, not every single thing that I care about or prefer has to happen. I don't have to leave a church. I don't have to divide with someone else because of something. There's certain things, yes, but not every single thing that we disagree about means that we have to divide over it. 
I've said this before, but, but a humble Christian realizes if this is your church, that even though you, you hopefully like most of what happens here, there's always going to be 10 to 20% of what happens at our church that just doesn't really apply to you. But what does a humble Christian say? They say, you know what? I don't really like that song that we sang, but maybe for someone else, that's exactly what they needed to hear the word that Jesus has for them today. Someone may say, you know, that sermon series that they're going through, like, I don't really think that applies to me. By the way, you don't get that in the humble one. This is for all of us, all right? But I, I don't really, like, that, that's not an issue I'm struggling with. But you know what? Maybe this is what's gonna help someone realize God loves them for the very first time. And even though I don't need it, I know someone else probably does. And a humble Christian isn't around places saying, this is what I want, this is what I need, but saying, hey, there's always going to be things that I can just graciously give away because it will serve the better needs of others. Because I'm not worried just about me, I'm looking out for the interests of others as well. See, humble people aren't thinking about themselves, they're looking outwards. I love what C.S. Lewis wrote about humility and how you would know if you encounter someone who's humble, what are they doing? He said this, a humble person will not be thinking about humility because a humble person will not be thinking about himself at all. He'll be thinking about others. He's not thinking, am I humble? Am I doing enough? She'll be thinking about you, not about herself. And as we have this vision of humility grasped into our hearts, it will be seen in this unity that is to be experienced in the church. Well, he continues in thinking of this theme of humility and Paul's mind is drawn to now one of our classic texts that we have in all of the Bible about the doctrine of Jesus, of Christology, as he looks to the example and life of Jesus. In verse five, it says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The second reason that as Christians, we should practice humility is humility reflects Jesus. Humility is a reflection or an imitation of how Jesus lived his life. Now, these verses, verses six through the end of what we're gonna look at today, verse 11, were likely, many scholars think, a poem or a hymn that was sung in the early church containing some rich theology of who Jesus is and why that matters in our lives. And we're gonna dive into some of this theological discussion in terms that are used in this passage. But as we do so, we're gonna see in this passage, there's a few, three different ways that Jesus demonstrates humility, that Jesus in his very essence and how he lived his life shows humility that we should follow in our lives as well, reflecting Jesus to the world. The first is seen in verse six, that he renunciated his rights. It says this, that, that he was in the form of God, did not consider equality to, with God, excuse me, a thing to be grasped. Now, when it says that he was in the form of God, the word there means that he was in very essence. It doesn't mean that Jesus looked like God, but he wasn't God, but that in the very essence, he is God, that he is preexistent. There was never a time where Jesus did not exist. He's not a created being. He has always existed as God, but he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So this is the idea that, that Jesus is equal with God. He is fully God, full divine nature is seen in Jesus Christ. And this is seen throughout all of the scriptures. Hebrews 1 puts it this way in speaking of Jesus, that he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
So Jesus being fully God renounced his rights and said, no, I will actually do the second thing that we see in this passage of humbling himself. And that is he took on human flesh. What we refer to as the incarnation, God taking on human flesh. It says that he emptied himself. This doesn't mean that he ceased to become God, but it's this humbling language. He gave up all of these rights. He emptied himself to do what? Make, to become, that's why, excuse me, some translations put that he made himself nothing. He emptied himself to do what? To take on human flesh, to be born in the likeness of men. Now, we will not understand the humility of the incarnation until we understand the grandeur and the glory of God. That Jesus, who has existed eternally as God, Jesus, who spoke the universe into existence by the word of his mouth, that same God living in all glory forever and ever said, I'm going to take on human flesh. We cannot understand that because you don't have the ability to be almighty and all powerful. You can't speak worlds into existence. So we can't understand in our human minds the humility that that took of God to take on human flesh, but he did. And it says here that that he took on human flesh and was born in human form, born as a likeness of man. And it's important in this doctrine that it teaches us that Jesus did not give up his divinity and become man, but he added his, he added, excuse me, divinity and man together. Was Jesus God or was he man? The answer is yes. That Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. It's what we call in theology, the doctrine of the hypostatic union. Hypostatic is the word meaning substance, that Jesus is fully substance God and he's fully substance man as well. Now, the identity of Jesus and was Jesus God, was Jesus man, was he both, was a huge deal to early Christians, as it rightfully still should be to us today. One of the biggest questions, if not the biggest question you can answer in your life is who is Jesus? And they wrestled with these texts like this and they came up, the the best phrase that they've had of who Jesus is, is he God, is he man, is both was founded the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD. I'm gonna read for us a part of it. I know for some of you, you wish I would read it in the original Latin, but some people here this morning don't know Latin, so I'm gonna read it in an English translation. I'm the one who doesn't know Latin, by the way. So this is one of their phrases, and this is big theology, but you guys are smart, and this is important for us to understand who Jesus is. Is he God? Is he man? Yes, he is 100% both. The phrase reads like this. I'll read for us in part. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regarding his manhood, like us in all respects apart from sin as regarding his Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages, but as regarding to his manhood, begotten for us men and for our salvation, of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten. He's recognized in two natures without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. And the phrase, the, the statement actually continues on from there. But this is so important because it refuted so many of the heresies that were going around in the church world at that time of who Jesus was. One of these that the statement refuted was the the ideas of Arianism, which said that Jesus was a created being, 
that there was God in the beginning, but at some point before the world was made, God created Jesus. And this is saying, no, 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 Jesus is God. He is not a created being. There was never a time where Jesus was not. He has eternally existed and it denied that. The second was something called Apollinarianism, which said that Jesus had a human body, but not a human mind. And so while he looked like you and I, he actually wasn't because his mind was divine. And so he looked like he was kind of man, but he wasn't really a man. He was really God. And it denies that. It says, no, he was fully God, but also fully man. It also refutes the teachings of what was called Nestorianism, which had many teachings, but most prominent of which said that there was times where he was sometimes human and sometimes God, but he was never both at the same time. So they'd say, well, when Jesus did miracles, he was God. When Jesus got tired, he was being man. Which was it? It's, no, it's not one or the other, or sometimes one or sometimes the other. It is both. Jesus does not just appear human. He is fully human. Jesus did not just appear to be God. He is fully God. And this is so important for us because it's not true humility of God to take on human flesh unless he actually became like us, right? Imagine someone's like, oh, God took on flesh, but he never got tired. He never got stressed. He never got sick. He never had a parent die. He never had friends stab him in the back. He never had any of the struggles that you or I had, but he took on flesh. He'd be like, that, he wasn't actually a human then if he didn't, because all of those things are so core to the human experience. But Jesus experienced all of those things. He was humbled in every single one of those things. He also had to live through an experience in his life. That Jesus, fully God, became fully man and humbled himself. But then it continues in verse eight. The third example of Jesus' humility is in his death. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, the death on the cross points to so much, but when you think of it this way, why was Jesus crucified? Why was he killed on a cross? It's not that the Roman soldiers from 2000 years ago didn't know how to kill people. And so they're like, oh, maybe if we just hang them up, eventually they'll die. They were proficient at the art of killing people. Why did they crucify people? Because as you hung naked on a tree in front of the, most, the, the main streets in town where thousands of people walked by, they thought this is the most humiliating thing possible for a person. That's why Jesus was crucified. It was trying to humiliate him. Jesus humbled himself even to that point of a death. Why? For you and for me. Jesus is the ultimate example of humility. It's seen this not just in his death, but throughout his whole life. Jesus came not carrying some weight of you have to do what I have to do. This is how it is. But he came to what? To serve others. There's this astounding story of Jesus near the end of his ministry in John chapter 13. And it says this, Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God. What does he do? He rose from supper laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus is the ultimate example of humility and he shows that greatness in life is found in humbly serving others. Greatness in life is found in humbly serving others. The son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The reality is, if you want to be like Jesus, which should be your goal if you're a Christian, you are never more like Jesus 
than when you are serving other people. You are never more like Jesus than when you are humbly serving others. Not when you're exalted, not when you're made a big deal, not when you're up front, not when you're praised, but when you're just quietly serving other people out of the humility of your hearts, because that's so close to the heart of Jesus, that he humbled himself, took on flesh, served others, and followed Jesus, followed God, excuse me, even to the point of death on a cross. And Christians should be humble because we serve a humble Savior who humbled himself for us. The third reason that Christians should be humble is seen in verses 9 through 11, the end of this passage. It says this, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The third reason every Christian should be humble is humility is a recognition of Jesus's greatness. Humility is a recognition of Jesus's greatness. There's, there's this thing that happens. Jesus humbled himself, therefore he now has been exalted. After his death, he was resurrected and has ascended and sits on high with God the Father enthroned in all glory and majesty. And because of that, he's given the name that is above every name, that Jesus is Lord. He is over all things. It was always true. But now through his death and resurrection, it's been made manifest and seen through the world. So that at his name, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. This is this comprehensive term of everyone bowing, of humbling themselves before the exalted risen Savior, Jesus Christ. On heaven means the spiritual beings that, that are now in heaven. On earth means all of humanity will one day bow the knee to Jesus. Under the earth is likely referencing even those fallen angels that rebelled against God will one day admit that Jesus is Lord. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, what is scary about so many Christians who struggle with humility who struggle with pride that gets in the way of humility. The challenge is for so many of us, it's not just a sin in our lives, but the reason that we aren't humble, the reason we have pride is because we haven't recognized who Jesus is. That when we see who Jesus is, when we see this savior and capture a vision for it, it roots out pride. We cannot help but be humble when we see who Jesus is. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. See, when we see him for who he truly is, humility is the only proper response to him. We can't be ignorant about it. When we know it, we have to respond in humility. This time of year is one of my favorite times of year. Um, as many of you know, I tell lots of stories about this. If you've been here for a while, I love to ride my bike. I love to cycle. I know more about cycling than most of you. You should get hobbies like me so we can be better friends. I think you're all crazy that you don't like to ride bikes. We live in the best place in the world for it. But coming up in just a, a few months is kind of the kickoff in all of North America of the cycling season. It's called the Seattle Classic. It's held down here at Laguna Seca Raceway, literally 40 minutes from us. I'm telling you, you should get into cycling more if you're not already. But I, I raced it a long time ago as a junior. I went back last year. I'll race at it again this year. And as I've done events like this, because most people don't know cycling again like I do, they know, hey, he rides his bike a lot. I don't ride my bike the most of anyone at church, depending on who's here on a Sunday. There are people here who ride a lot more than me. But people will sometimes hear I'm signing up for events like this and be like, hey, are, do you have a chance to win? To which I say, you know, I've been doing this for 25 years. I've been and seen a lot of races. I have a very informed answer. Do I have any chance to win? The answer is no. 
there is zero chance that I have to win. Like, well, what about? I'm like, no, there is zero chance because I have seen me and I have seen professional athletes. That is not me. There is zero opportunity that I have to win. Just like how none of you go to a 49er game and think, oh, I could do that. Like, no, no, you can't. That is a whole other level. You cannot do that. Now, if I was ignorant and had never gone to a race, never seen a professional, I could be like, hey, I ride my bike a lot. I'm a big deal. I could win. And what would happen? I would quickly be humbled as I show up. See, for people who are ignorant of who Jesus is, they can rightfully say to themselves, yeah, I'm a big deal. I can have pride in myself. Why? Because they don't know who Jesus is. They've not caught what he's done for them. They don't understand the incarnation that God took on flesh. They don't get what the cross is about. The resurrection means nothing to them. And they could maybe say in their worldview, yeah, I, I should be prideful. I'm pretty good at life. I'm a big deal. But if we have caught a glimpse of God, if we've understood what it means that the God enthroned almighty took on flesh, if we understand what it means that he humbled himself to death on a cross, if we get what the resurrection means, if we get that he now sits enthroned above all things and all rulers and all authority and has all power, and we think to ourselves, I'm a big deal? You haven't gotten who Jesus is. Pride has no place in the life of a Christian because we see how great Jesus is and we are informed and our only answer is, no, I'm not great. Only God is. And humility cannot take place in our lives until we recognize how great he is. There's this beautiful thing that happens in this passage for Jesus that can happen in our lives as well when it comes to humility. And that is by humbling ourselves before God, humility is actually the path to exaltation in life. Humility is the path to exaltation. Notice Jesus humbles himself and therefore what? God exalts him. James 4 puts it this way, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. See, if you're here this morning, the question isn't, will you one day bow before Jesus and proclaim that he is Lord, but will you do it now or will you do it in eternity? Will you do it later? Because for every single one of us, we have that opportunity and my prayer is that if you have never been humbled by the cross, if you've never seen Jesus's love for you, if you've never recognized how great he is, what it meant that he took on flesh, that he died for you, that he rose again just because he loves you and to forgive you, that today would be the day that you would bow your knee, that you would confess your sin, that you would humble yourself and say, Jesus is Lord, I'm not great. Jesus is great and that he can change your life. And for those of us who are Christians, that we would learn who Jesus truly is, that we become so enthralled with his greatness, his beauty, his grandeur, that it would root out every inch of pride in our lives, that we would be humble, not because we try or because of efforts from ourselves, but we would be humble because we see how great our savior is. And that's the only proper response that we can have to him. Jesus, we praise and worship you this morning. For you indeed are great and you are worthy to be praised. That the God of all things, the God who created the world, the God who created every single one of us, humbled himself to take on flesh, humbled himself to die on a cross for me. God, you are the only one worthy of our praise. 
God, would you root out from our hearts and our lives the sin of pride that has no right there? God, would we capture such a vision of our hearts of who Jesus is, of what he has done for us, that this kind of humility would be seen in our lives, this kind of humility would be seen in our church. God, this kind of humility would lead to unity that would change our world for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We praise you this morning for you are the only one worthy of our lives. You're the only one worthy of glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.